Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm David McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. This week, Washington is returning to work after a summer break during which the Democratic Party pruned its list of potential candidates to take on President Donald Trump in 2020. At one point, there were as many as 27 candidates in the race. That number has now shrunk. This Thursday, the party will hold its third primary debate in Houston, with just 10 participants. On today's podcast, I'm going to look at the remaining contestants and the issues that are likely to dominate the race in the months ahead. And to do that, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, who's finishing up her holidays in Ireland. Suzanne, welcome. Good to be here. First of all, can you just explain the process here? The field is not strictly down to 10 candidates, but the Democratic National Committee rules mean that low polling candidates don't make the televised debates. Yeah, exactly. Um, Effectively, this field has been winnowed down. This is one of the biggest fields we've seen for a long time on the Democratic side. There's more than 20 people who who wanted to run uh, to become the Democratic candidate. Um, And the first two official debates between the Democratic candidates um, were held over two nights and there were 20 candidates. But since then, they've had to uh, reach certain criteria in order to be considered to take part in the third debate. Um, And now it's been winnowed down to 10, as you say. But that doesn't mean that the others who did not make that last cut for the debate have exited the race. A lot of those people are still, you know, doing campaign events in Iowa, saying they're running for president. But effectively, I think it's fair to say that the the 10 people taken to the stage this week in Texas and Houston are actually really the only 10 contenders for the race at this stage. So we we are seeing the field uh, narrow down. We're seeing the money narrowing down in terms of who's um, donating to candidates. And I think now the pool has effectively, even though not officially, uh, been winnowed down to 10. Now, you uh, reported from the first two debates Mm. in in Miami in June and and in Detroit Mm. uh, in July. Uh, and both of those saw the frontrunner, Joe Biden, struggle a little bit, I suppose, yeah. in different ways. He was at least under severe pressure. And, and you might have thought maybe not doing himself any mm-hmm. favours. And yet, looking at the polling at the end mm-hmm. of the summer, it, it seems t- to suggest he remains well ahead and actually has come through the summer quite unscathed. Yeah, I think it's from the beginning of this process, the big question was whether Joe Biden would ent- enter the race or not. He did. He announced back in April that he was uh, contesting uh, the nomination. And this completely uh, dominated and changed the dynamic of the presidential um, nominee race on the Democratic side. Uh, Joe Biden has been consistently the front runner in polling uh, among Democrats and indeed among the country as a whole. I mean, he's still, on, you know, in the, hasn't got past the 30. So it's not like he's got a huge advantage, but he's well ahead, double digit figures ahead of, of some of his rivals. Um, so, but what happened was, I think there was a sense that Joe Biden was uh, uh, entering this as a front runner. He did not perform well in the debates. Um, most memorably, he was attacked by Kamala Harris during the first debate, who really, really, um, really made her mark uh, in terms of her own profile and attacked him on issues, particularly like race uh, and his, his congressional record and his record as vice president. And really, you know, what these debates showed were, were, uh, were Joe Biden's vulnerabilities that are always been there and are going to continue to be there for the next few months. And that is his age. Um, he's the oldest candidate running. 
uh, in the race and B, the fact that he's been so long in politics that he obviously have, has a lot of baggage um, that his opponents now are willing to go for. Uh, so his record on race relations in particular have come under scrutiny. But as you say, crucially, uh, this hasn't affected him as much as you might think in the polls. Uh, he is still up there. And just this week, there was a poll out that showed that in a head-to-head with Trump, hypothetically, in the key swing state of Wisconsin, he is well ahead on that, uh, more than 50%. So uh, the Democratic Party now really have to tread carefully because uh, I think Biden has lost a lot of the momentum in terms of the coverage, in terms of the talk, in terms of you know the speculation about who will take on Donald Trump but he's still performing the best out of all the candidates at this stage even though we're still more than a year away obviously from the election next year. So his lead, his lead is substantial but not bulletproof by any means uh, at this stage. Absolutely, that's the way. And, and, you know, we've seen in previous years, you know, people can come out of of, of the of left field um, very soon. He, he also could face uh, some kind of a scandal, some kind of a... An accusation. He's he's been accused by some women of inappropriate behaviour when he's vice president. That issue he's managed to kind of contain. Always possible that something might come up on that again. So he's by no means secure, by no means at all. Um, but you know he's on on he's still the front runner uh, by by nearly all um, measurements. Now, the, uh, one other interesting detail from a, a clutch of polls that came out at the end of August was that it seemed to be becoming a three-horse race, at mm. least at that point, with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, mm. the other two, polling strongly. Um, can we read much into that at this point? Yeah, I think that's been consistent, really. And as you say, these three front runners, Biden, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think Sanders could be in difficulty. Uh, it's obviously his second time since since the, he was the, the main... Uh, candidate as well as Clinton in 2016. Um, And there's an irony facing Bernie Sanders. He obviously espouses a very uh, left-wing ideology that got a lot of support really uh, among primary voters the last time around. But in a sense, the wind has been taken out of his sails in a sense because since then, I think we have seen a resurgent radical left wing in the Democratic Party, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squads, that group of four congresswomen who really, you know, embrace a a genuinely socialist position in a lot of ways. And I think they they are stealing his thunder in a sense. And there is a sense, I think, that maybe his moment has passed. He's also seeing a lot of um, a threat, if you like, from Elizabeth Warren, who is equally a left wing in her agenda. She is performing remarkably well. He obviously didn't have this kind of opponent the last time. It was him versus Clinton. But now he's got people like Warren who are coming alongside him, you know, challenging him from the left. And he is going to find it very difficult, I think, um, to, you know, to beat her in, in when it comes down to it, as things get closer to the election. Also, we see some of the issues that dogged Bernie Sanders are still there, namely his uh, poor polling among African-American voters. That's an issue with him. Uh, and I think that has not gone away and he's not really been able to address that uh, at this point in the campaign, at least. Sanders and Warren, as you say, similar, very similar, similar policy positions uh, on issues such as healthcare and climate. Um, but they have had something of a non-aggression pact in, mm. in, the, in the debate so far. Is that likely to continue or, or might they start to be put a little distance between each yeah. other? Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of the one of the dynamics to watch going forward over the next few months, because you're right, particularly in the last debate uh, or in the first debate, actually, in Miami, they were both on the same stage and what was notable was that you know neither was taking on the other and they were agreeing with each other don't forget these are people who work together both senators they work together in the US Senate they know each other Um, so I think uh, there was as you say this kind of non-aggression pact that might start changing what we've seen with Bernie Sanders is 
that he's been one of the most vocal opponents of Joe Biden. He has gone out fighting uh, when it comes to Biden's record. He is under pressure uh, from Biden in a very different way. But, you know, he's he's hoping not to lose votes to Joe Biden. So that's where his fire has been directed. That may change as the debate's going forward, particularly as Warren seems to be kind of quietly building up quite a following among primary voters. Yeah, and, and I suppose with the, this debate coming up, we're, it'll be the first time we'll see Biden and Warren on the same stage. Mm. Uh, they've been separate on separate nights uh, previously. Uh, mm. I suppose that's where a lot of the attention will focus, won't it, on the dynamic between those two? Yeah, I think so, because of her front-runner runner status. Elizabeth Warren is a very interesting figure. Uh, she obviously uh, is well-known as a, a critic and a very effective a critic, critic of the banks. Um, and just speaking to people in Washington, I think the business community are, are genuinely concerned about her running. She uh, is a Harvard professor, um, knows her stuff economically and c- can communicate that um, and occupies a lot of the same ground as Sanders. But what she also has and which can't be underestimated is she's got that kind of folksy appeal that Joe Biden has. She talks a lot about her own background, growing up in Oklahoma, and does seem to connect with voters on that level. And that's something, of course, that Joe Biden prides himself on and is very effective on, that he does communicate with that kind of middle America um, constituent. And I think Biden or Warren is very, very strong on that too. So whether she starts dividing, you know, setting herself across, uh, apart from Biden will be will be very, very interesting to watch, particularly on his record on trade um, and also perhaps women's rights. We might see her coming out on that because she has been quite uh, on the background on that so far. But another one of the rivals, Kirsten Gillibrand, who really uh, placed herself as a female candidate on women's issues, family issues, she's since dropped out of the race. So will we see Elizabeth Warren occupying that space uh, this week in the debate? It's very likely. Behind those three, as you say, um, we can always have a candidate emerge from left field. Is it fair to say that Kamala Harris, who was very prominent uh, Mm. in the first debate particularly, but also, also just basically strong through the summer, has she quite capitalised on that or, or is she still one to watch? Yeah, I think it's been disappointing for Harris in the sense that her very, you know, you, you can't argue with her. Her performance in the first debate was excellent. She really, uh, she really took on Joe Biden very, very effectively. In the second debate, she was on shakier ground, in particular her position on healthcare, which is really such a huge issue in this election. She uh, was revealed to have a kind of um, ambivalent stance, I think, about single-payer healthcare, how far she would go to essentially um, introduce a government, a fully government-supported plan on healthcare. This is a real difficult issue for Democrats because even though... um, most people in America realise that there is a problem with healthcare provision and they and the limits that are still there in Obamacare because some states have not rolled that out fully. A lot of Democratic voters are quite happy with the private health insurance they have and really don't want to sacrifice that. So um, the Sanders plan, which is much more socialist, you know, could be a problem for him. Joe Biden's taken a much more centrist ground. Kamala Harris, though, equivocated on this and she was coming under very strong questioning on this. So she needs to, I think, you know, maybe some of that might be strategy. She doesn't want to be pinned down on something that she might want to change her position on. Uh, But that may start becoming a problem for her. Uh, In saying that, I think she has got a very strong following, again, among um, minorities, among uh, the African-American community, Hispanic community. Also, a significant advantage for her is that she's from California, very well-known former Attorney General of California, Senator for California, 
And California now is an er, it's, it's going to be voting earlier in the process. So actually quite a lot of candidates are putting a lot of work into California and her showing there uh, might be quite valuable for her. So she might be one to watch, you know, later on in the campaign. She might kind of regain ground even if she doesn't perform well, if she can hold on long enough. Um, I still think she's not to be written off. She's also very effectively um, placed herself as a as a leader, as she talks in this language a lot, a lot saying, I can lead, the subliminal message being, I can take on Donald Trump. Uh, we haven't seen that kind of language from Elizabeth Warren, so I think she could be on difficult ground there in terms of has she got what it takes to be commander-in-chief. Uh, but again, we might see Warren playing that up as the debates continue over the next few months. CNN just held a, a, a town hall debate um, at which the 10 candidates laid out their environmental credentials. Um, vowing to, to scrap Trump's policies, of course, um, signed back up to the Paris Agreement. And, and I think they all seem to uh, back a carbon tax, uh, which, mm. which might become a big issue, I suppose, in, in the months ahead. Mm. How big a deal is environment going to be in this election? I think it's a much bigger deal than it has been any other election. Um, it's very much the forefront of this debate. And ironically, if you like, or fortuitously, you could say, uh, the debate, the CNN debate took place just as Hurricane Dorian was, was pummeling the Bahamas and on its way to the US coast. So I think this is a very real issue for a lot of Americans, particularly in states like Florida, for example. They were hugely affected by hurricanes last year. That's quite a very, very important uh, swing state. The problem with climate change is that all Democrats are kind of on the same page. It's quite hard to distinguish yourself on this issue. Um, as you say, the Paris Climate Agreement, obviously, um, that's, that's a point where everyone is going to say, we will sign back into the Paris Agreement. We don't agree with Trump's policy on this. What you did see, though, was quite interesting. Was It was almost like a microcosm uh, of the campaign these candidates are running generally. So Joe Biden, for example, talked about working with international powers to uh, to approach the climate change issue. Uh, and again, he's he's been stressing that all along, his kind of huge experience as vice president and how we can restore America's standing in the world. Um, Bernie Sanders, as you can imagine, again, didn't disappoint in terms of his radical idea. He is, um, he is proposing a $16 trillion plan to combat climate change. He's unapologetic about that. Um, Elizabeth Warren, again, again used this uh, debate on climate change to really, again, highlight her skills, which is, which are um, talking about policy in a very, uh, in a very easy to understand way. So during the debate, we kind of saw her take her time, talk through policy without kind of patronising people, but actually in a clear way. Uh, so I think, you know, she, she benefited from that kind of forum. Uh, but it is a big issue. But again, somebody like Joe Biden has to be uh, careful not to alienate voters, say, in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, who do have a strong tradition of fossil fuels, who have lost jobs in the coal industry. So they're kind of having a tricky balance in, in trying not to alienate uh, voters. And we may well see Republicans highlighting this issue, scaremongering, and oh, you know, Democrats are way to the left on climate change. Um, and that could be, you know, a vulnerability for them with Republican voters when it comes to the election proper, even though it's an advantage at the primary stage among just the Democratic electorate.
one thing that strikes me, I mean, what is the sentiment like when you're when you're when you're going around when you're traveling in America uh, towards climate? Um, obviously, we've seen in Europe in the last year, um, you know, mm. big, big votes for green parties almost seem to sneak up, up on the main parties in, in a way. Is it the same or is it, are they still kind of entrenched in, in those yeah. positions? I don't think it's the same as in Europe, you know, where you do have a sophisticated and quite developed green movement. I don't think that's the case in the US. Um, I mean, and, and it's a regu- regulatory issue, uh, you know, bipartisan wise. I mean, in Brussels, the European Commission has done huge work in increasing regulations around on everything in, in terms of climate change. It just is not there in the US and, and, and Congress just hasn't passed laws to the same extent as they have in the EU. So look, it's an issue, but not a huge one. I think um, the fact that Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which in many ways was just reflecting his move away from multilateralism in lots of ways. He doesn't like multilateral institutions. He doesn't like the idea of working collectively with other countries. Obviously, his policy is America first. Um, so I think it's kind of an easy is an easy issue for Democrats to uh, cling on to and to criticise Republicans on. But I don't know, you know, how far American policy is, is ultimately going to change when it comes to climate change. It's always an issue, of course, Suzanne, how, how much the candidates are going to focus on Donald Trump. He's such a huge presence in this race in the background or how much they're going to focus on their own policies and, and one another. Isn't that right? Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's always a problem because, in a way, Democrats at this point are airing their dirty linen, they're fighting each other, they're exposing each other's vulnerabilities, and that will, of course, be seized upon by Republicans when the election proper starts. And actually, Hillary Clinton has said publicly she believes that Bernie Sanders, for example, did so much damage and kind of laid the path for Donald Trump to attack her when the election itself came around. But that that's unavoidable, and that, there's a whole issue there around how parties pick candidates. Uh, so Democrats are out there having to fight their own ground at a much uh, earlier stage than the Republican nominee, who presumably will be Donald Trump, uh, has to. Um, In saying that, I think that this is Joe Biden's big calling card. He is saying, and polls, to be fair to him, are are suggesting this, that people feel that he may be the best person to take on Trump. Um, And he is the only candidate, really, who keeps saying that. He's using this all the time in the the campaign. He's saying, you know, he's he's directly criticising Donald Trump and saying he's the man to beat him. This may become more of an issue as time goes on. It could be an issue, I think, for Elizabeth Warren. As I said earlier, I think she's, um, for all her uh, skills in terms of policy, there's, there's kind of reminders here of the Hillary Clinton campaign. That is, no, that is not everything. And she needs to be able to say and show that she is somebody who can take on Trump and play that kind of commander-in-chief role. Kamala Harris is doing very well on that. And, and I think Harris benefited from the fact that during some of the Senate hearings as a senator, she really effectively took on Attorney General William Barr. That was televised all over America, where you know her prosecutorial skills were really on show. And I think people felt, OK, she is somebody who could go head-to-head with Trump and take him on. Um, but look, he's looming large. I think he did not have a very good summer. Uh, he didn't achieve very much. He uh, alienated a lot, even of his base, in terms of his, you know, piecemeal approach to policy at the G7. Is is kind of over and back on trade with China. No kind of cohesive policy that even left some of his own party members really struggling to get a grip on what this president wants. So I don't think uh, he had a particularly good summer. And also, of course, the economy. Major headwinds there that is a real vulnerability for Trump. Interestingly, we have not seen much talk about the economy from Democrats uh, so far. If the economy starts to change and if this trade war really starts making more of an impact than it even is at the moment, that could become the kind of key uh, talking point for both sides uh, as the the, uh, presidential race heats up. 
given the, the, the struggles he's having on policy at the moment, um, can we expect him to leap into campaign mode now after into the autumn or 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 might that be a while a while uh, longer? It might be a while longer. What we have seen, and it's 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 an interesting way to co- to follow the debate is when Donald Trump is tweeting about one of the Democratic opponents. You know that's the one he's most worried about. And for a while he was he was tweeting about Joe Biden, uh, and his advisors seem to still think he's kind of the one to watch. But Joe Biden has has basically disappointed his supporters. I think he hasn't performed that well. Uh, yeah, he's still in the lead, but is vulnerable. So that's that's good news for Trump. But I think the economy is one issue that Donald Trump does worry about. He worries about the stock market performance. We've seen him hitting out at the chair of the Federal Reserve again and again about interest rate policy. Um, and I think that he that's something that he will start hitting Democrats on. And we even see it a bit already since the start of this campaign in the last few months. He has been branding Democrats as socialists constantly. And that message, I expect, will continue. Um, you know, American media ad- advertisements are so aggressive. They're already uh, playing clips of Democratic candidates uh, supporting Medicare for all and they're painting them as kind of a bunch of socialists. And that does work with Americans. I mean, I think it does work with the electorate uh, that they don't, they're, they're, they're not comfortable um, with some of the kind of mainstream economic policies that are taken as a given here in Europe. They just aren't, even on the Democratic side. So I expect uh, Republicans to continue the scaremongering right into next year. But I think the economic headwinds are a real vulnerability for Trump. Uh, the other argument, though, is that now uh, we are in different times. Donald Trump is such a divisive figure that I think talking to voters around the country, that it's all about you either love Trump or hate him, and that's why people are going to vote. The economy is not a big an issue. And some of the polls have shown that. The economy is not as big an issue as it may have once been, that actually it's about either if you're a Democrat getting Trump out of office or if you're a Trump-supporting Republican keeping him in. And actually, though that's the dynamic. That's a simple dynamic, I think, driving the election this time around. So it'll be interesting to see that if whether economic issues are really as important as they have traditionally been in American elections. So when you were, say, in in Michigan a Mm. few weeks ago, um, when you spoke to the softer voters, maybe the ones that are more likely to kind of switch sides and and Mm. did before the last election, are those people sick of Trump? Or are they? How are Look, they going to vote? Michigan was a very good example. It's one of the swing states that Trump won in 2016. So Democrats need to really win these kind of states back. Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida. But in Michigan, it's, it's a great example. It's a state of about 10 million people. Trump won that state by 10,000 votes, by an absolute tiny percentage. But I went, I visited one county, Macomb County, and some analysts believe that that county and two others in the whole country actually flipped it for Trump. They voted for Trump, and if they hadn't done, he may have lost the election. But I was talking to voters there, and you had Trump supporters. They were they were talking about the economy a bit, but what they re, what's really resonating with them is the kind of culture wars, if you like. Brett Kavanaugh, that whole controversy about how he was accused of sexual assault um, when he was a teenager, that is resonating still with Trump. They're still talking about it, saying he was treated unfairly, um, and they they believe Donald Trump has been targeted unfairly. And what you've seen in Michigan, the danger for Democrats is during the midterm elections in November, uh, Democrats performed extremely well. They flipped houses, flipped, flipped seats in the House there on state level. Uh, they've the biggest turnout in fifty years. Huge energy around the Democratic side. But that doesn't necessarily replicate itself on a presidential election. And one congressman I spoke to there, Dan Kildee, he made the point that actually in the last 2016 presidential election, hundreds of thousands of Democrats came and voted down ballot and actually didn't vote on the presidential ticket. 
because essentially they didn't like Hillary Clinton as a candidate. So they do need to be careful to pick the right candidate there or Democrats won't necessarily vote for their person. So it's all going to come down to turnout and both sides are motivated. That's the reality. Now, technically, um, Donald Trump is, is facing a, a, a primary race, I guess. Mm. You, could, you could call it that. There are three candidates that he has called the Three Stooges um, mm. uh, ta- trying to take him on. Um, is there any chance, uh, just tell us who they are, I suppose, but who, any chance they could make life uncomfortable for, for him in any yeah. way? Yeah, so we've seen a couple. We've seen a couple coming out, as you say, and challenge Donald Trump. So uh, the former Illinois uh, member of Congress, Joe Walsh, has come out um, and other senior people who have saying, you know, we need to take on Donald Trump. In saying that, I think he's going to get the nomination. What we've seen in the last two years is that the Republican Party as an institution has rode behind Donald Trump, essentially. Even people like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, who were so critical of him in 2016, they're essentially behind the president. Now, what we've seen is a, a Trumpian takeover of Republicanism, I think, in the United, in the United States. So I think he's pretty safe. Um and I think a lot of people were watching the midterms, for example. I think that was a key moment last November to see, you know, is Trump a helper hindrance? Can we back him or do we uh, face losing our seats? And they did pretty well. Republicans did pretty well. Um, you know, Democrats did win back control of the House, but that was kind of expected. So it wasn't uh, the kind of repudiation of Trump that many people saw. In saying that, several members of Congress, Republican members of the House, 13 in fact at this stage, have announced that they're going to retire that's worrying for the Republicans. Some of them are, are elderly, they're moving on, but they actually, you know, is there a worry there that the Trump may be a liability and they don't think they're going to win their seats? So I think, as well as the presidential election, Republicans have to, are thinking about winning back control of the House of Representatives in November uh, 2020. Um, and I think that's a bad sign for Republicans that so many Republican members of Congress are retiring. OK, well, that's all we have time for. Thanks a lot to you, Suzanne, for your time today. And thanks also to producer Declan Conlon. For more of our reporting on the Democratic primary and the Trump presidency, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening.